Hey everyone, this is Josh with Spurgeon Maniacs to share how you guys can partner with us. First off, thank you to everyone who has been listening to our show and to those of you that came to our conference. We are gearing up to expand what we do for you guys, but we need your help. Go on over to patreon.com forward slash Spurgeon Maniacs. We would love to have your support to continue doing this podcast, conferences, and so much more as we grow. Also, give this podcast a five-star review on Apple or Google Podcasts. That's how more and more people are going to find what we're doing over here. Lastly, come find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and don't forget to email us at podcast at SpurgeonManiacs.com. Now, here is your episode. Charles Spurgeon was a man that God used, and millions are still being impacted by his kingdom work. As we examine his life and ministry, we hope to strengthen today's church and bring glory to Christ. My name is Joel Littlefield, lead pastor of New City Church in Bath, Maine, and I'm joined by my brother in Christ, Josh Whitney. Welcome to the Spurgeon Maniacs podcast. everyone it has been well it's been a minute for sure so we have a lot of stuff going on joel and i are as well as peter doing the pastoral residency joel has his fourth annual feed my sheep conference fourth third third fourth. I, I don't know that's sarah so that's my wife hello um, I'm just doing this little bit of recording before we introduce our podcast episode, which is going to be Ed Romine's talk at our Spurgeon conference that we had back in May. This talk is going to be on Spurgeon's open air preaching. I really hope you guys enjoy that. We have a recorded episode, so you will be hearing from us on Monday with that, and hopefully that's going to set us up on the right pace to start doing our weekly Monday episode releases. Thank you guys for your patience. Um, You are awesome. We love being able to have this podcast for you. We really enjoy being able to hear some feedback from you. So with all of these, if there's anything you guys want, any topic suggestions, don't hesitate to email us, podcast at SpurgeonManiacs.com. Come over to our social medias. Find us there, interact with us, and we really hope you guys enjoy this Spurgeon Conference talk from Dr. Ed Romine, Spurgeon's Open Air Preaching. Well, it's a joy to be able to be up here. As you can tell from my accent, I'm not a native Utahan. I'm not native to New England either, 
I'm originally from Texas, and yeah, well, good. So it's such a joy and blessing to be here with you all. I give you greetings from the First Baptist Church of Provo, Utah, where I get the joy of being a member and a pastor. I serve as the pastor of education and evangelism. People ask me, what is that? What do I do? And I tell them, well, I do a little bit of everything. I preach, teach, evangelize LDS. But one of the things I enjoy talking about is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And as you figured out by now, hopefully, you're at the first annual Spurgeon Maniacs Charles Spurgeon Conference. And I've been tasked to speak upon the pedagogy and practice of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's open-air preaching. The pedagogy and practice of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's open-air preaching. And when I was doing my MDiv, I had a church history professor by the name of Dr. Rob Caldwell, who always opened up his lectures with the reading from Holy Scripture. And he always made it relate rather well to the lecture that in which he was about to do. So I would like to do the same thing. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter... Second Timothy chapter 4. And if you know anything about 2 Timothy, you know that this is the Apostles Paul parting letter to his protege Timothy. It's as if an old man in the faith is speaking to a dearly beloved young man. And in the last chapter, he begins... His parting words this way, starting in verse 1. God says through his servant Paul in chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, verse 2, preach the word, Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in the mess. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Would you pray with me to begin the session? Father, as we look to your 
servant Spurgeon, your adopted son Spurgeon. May we see from our departed brother an example as we've already seen in, in the other teachings this morning and how to look at the Psalms and how to <coughs> appoint godly qualified men as pastors. I pray that this teaching time would be a continuation upon the foundation built for me already. May you help us as we continue to study your servant Spurgeon. And may people come away from this teaching time as all the others, glorying in your gospel. <clears throat> Help the men here to be valiant preachers of the word, to follow Paul's advice. Help those who are not preachers here to be prayer warriors for the preachers in their life. We pray all these things in the name of your son. Amen. <coughs> So with my lecture, I'm essentially going over aspects of my Ph.D. work. And this won't be the sum of everything for my Ph.D. dissertation. I want to give you highlights to it, and hopefully that will whet your appetite to want to read more. Lord willing, you will be able to read more soon. My dissertation is coming out in book form through Wiffenstock under the Pickwick imprint. And I'm hoping that it will be a blessing to God's entire church. Because I believe that my work has really, for lack of a better word, helped underscore an overlooked area of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's ministry. And that is the ministry of open-air preaching, of open-air preaching. Spurgeon believed in the pedagogy of it, and he, of course, practiced it. <laughs> and if you were to look at my dissertation, you would see that it's entitled The Booming Baritone Bell of England, The Pedagogy and Practice of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's open-air preaching. Now, with any good dissertation, there's going to be some fancy $5 words that the common human being may not know. So let me just go over a couple of those with you. Pedagogy is simply the art and practice of how to teach. It's the study of teaching. So people that are pedagogues are ones who have studied how to teach in a particular field. So Spurgeon, one could argue from my research, was a pedagogue or pedagogue of open-air preaching. And you can really be a pedagogue of anything, uh, astro-science uh, or astrophysics, you know, poodle grooming, it doesn't matter what it is. You can actually go and learn how to groom dogs. There's a pedagogy to it. 
There's an art of how to teach it and how to teach others to do those things. Well, Spurgeon was a pedagogue of open-air preaching. He taught from the pulpit, and in his Friday afternoon lectures, his students how to open-air preach. And you may be asking, what is open-air preaching? Perhaps you've never heard of that before. Well, preaching simply is the proclamation of God's Word. The proclamation of God's Word. If I were to define it more specifically, the proclamation of God's Word to sinners, both redeemed and unredeemed. If you have a good pastor, or if you are a good pastor, every Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, whenever your church meets, your pastor, or you as the pastor, you stand, or in my case, sit behind a pulpit or a lectern, and you declare just what Paul tells Timothy to do. Preach God's Word. And you exhort your people to live by that. But what about those who will never darken the doorway of a church? Perhaps those in these six states that we commonly call New England. Well, Spurgeon had a word for Old England that I want to read to you here. Listen to what he stated one time in a sermon. All over England, in our cities, towns, villages, and hamlets, there are tens of thousands who will never hear the gospel while open-air preaching is neglected. It is altogether a mischievous thing that we should confine our preaching within walls. I didn't say that, Spurgeon said that. That's very strong language, dear friends. And when he talks about confining preaching within walls, he's talking about buildings just like this one. Because as you all know as preachers and good Bible students, the church is not the physical building. The church is the gathering of God's people under the sacraments of the the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper with the authority of God-called qualified pastors and deacons. And, but Spurgeon says here in 19th century England that there are tens of thousands who will never hear the gospel while open-air preaching is neglected. And then he says it's a mischievous thing to neglect open-air preaching. Now, if he said such strong language about open-air preaching, I thought to myself, why are so many people neglecting this strongly held aspect of his ministry? And let me be clear, I'm not saying that you have to wholeheartedly buy into what Spurgeon is saying. But what I'm trying to get across with my dissertation work is if you 
desire to have a Spurgeonic ministry, a ministry like Spurgeon's. If you desire, like so many within the so-called young, restless, and reformed movement, to imitate Spurgeon in all his ways, you cannot neglect this aspect of his ministry and at least consider it for your own ministry context. And that is not the strongest words he had. He says in that little quote, it's a mischievous thing that open air preaching being neglected. But he goes on to say this curious phrase, that ministers who do not practice it are guilty of positive sin. Positive sin. You say, what in the world is that? Well, we'll get to that thoroughly. Listen to this quote by Spurgeon. It's actually very long, but it's good. I know you're probably hungry, but bear with me. This is good stuff. Did our Lord intend the minister to go on preaching from his pulpit to empty pews when by standing on a chair or a table outside the meeting house he might be heard by hundreds? Of course, if the crowd fill the house and it's as large as the human voice can fill, there's the less need for us to go out into the streets. But alas, there are places of worship in London by scores, not one-fourth or even one-tenth filled, and yet the preacher goes on contentedly. A minister is living in positive sin who constantly preaches to a mere handful within walls while outside there are crowded courts and lanes and the alleys where men are perished for lack of knowledge. The minister who does his duty goes out into the highways and the hedges. He goes into all the world. He preaches without whether men will hear or whether they will forbear, and delights to make hills and woods ring with the message of peace. You know how old he said that? He's a little bit older than your preacher right now. He's 34 years old when he said that. What do you think about that rhetoric from a 34-year-old man? It's pretty strong, isn't it? Well, Spurgeon felt so strongly about open-air preaching. He said that ministers who did not practice it, those who were content to be in places with lots of people and to just only preach in the open air, he said that they were guilty of positive sin. And by that, I think Spurgeon was meaning he knew that the minister knows what he ought to do, but he doesn't do it. That, I believe, is Spurgeon's condemnation of such ministers. He, he goes on to say in one lecture, in one sermon, he says that he would almost like to see church buildings burnt down if that meant that it would get preachers to go out into the open air and herald the gospel, not only for the benefits of the saints, but for the benefits of sinners. So when you look at Spurgeon, regardless of 
what you think of him, you've got to reckon with this fact. He held very strongly to open-air preaching. And he had this warning to those who would oppose the preaching of the gospel. And listen to this. I've known others quite alarmed at the idea of Christ's name being mentioned in a place that had been put to common uses. As if in the olden times, Christ could have been preached anywhere if it had been necessary to have a place consecrated to Christian worship. There is a class of persons who object to every holy project for evangelization, however right and judicious, if it happens to be novel, and they will continue to object till the work has long been in action and has placed itself beyond fear of their opposition or need of their assistance. We shall degenerate into a race of scribes and Pharisees if we give way to this spirit. We shall again be slaves to traditions, legends, and old wives' fables, as bad as those which polluted Judaism. In the name of everything that is Christ-like, away with all that checks the vital action of the body of Christ. He's saying that if we do not go back to being evangelistic in every situation possible, including open air, we're basically going back to Rome-like tradition. Now, whether or not you agree with Spurgeon, I hope I've made it very clear that this is something that he found absolutely unnegotiable for those who wish to be preachers. You may not be in a context where open-air preaching is, is helpful. You may be in a small town where, where, no, where there's no foot traffic, where the people that you see, maybe you see two or three people a day because your town is so small. But if you live in a larger metropolitan area, Spurgeon would hold your feet to the fire, as it were, to get your glorious preaching of the gospel outside of the four walls where the local church meets and to the lost sinners who are perishing and dying. And Spurgeon would often get this objection I have here written. If the people want to hear the gospel, let them go to a church or chapel. They can always hear the gospel when they like. Sounds reasonable, right? In New England, there are gospel churches, just like New City Church, that's welcoming the sinners in the best way possible. And sinners can come and sit in these chairs tomorrow morning and hear the Word of God preached. And even in Utah, in a Mormon-laden state, there are still true churches that herald the gospel in all vigor and seek to obey Paul's charge to Timothy. What does Spurgeon say when they say to him, if people want to hear the gospel, let them go to church or chapel. They can always hear the gospel where they like. Look at what Spurgeon says. Spurgeon responds, that is not Christ's way. We are to go and seek them. 
He goes on further to say, open-air preaching is a blessed institution, and though you may block up a thoroughfare sometimes, it is better to do that than the thoroughfare to hell should be crowded. If you can turn a soul from the road to hell, it will not matter, though you may turn some passengers in the street out of his way so that he may have to mire his boots. What he is saying is, Open-air preaching may seem objectionable. It may not seem effective. It may make people mad at you. It may just darken their perfect little day. But if that's what the Lord uses to save their soul, Spurgeon says, it's worth it all. And I know from reading more of Spurgeon's work, so I won't quote this directly, he essentially says, remember that you're preaching to an audience of one, always. You are preaching for His glory, not the applause of men. And Spurgeon knew that to be true, to use a phrase that dear Dr. Renahan used about the psalm being happy-clappy. Psalm 88's not happy-clappy. Spurgeon's life was not happy-clappy. Uh, there's a dissertation I would commend to you all. He, he knew suffering. That's why he could write so well on Psalm 88. There's a dissertation by one of my readers of my dissertation, Dr. Brian Albert. It's called When the Wind Blows Cold. And it's a study on Spurgeon's life and how depression was used by God to shape Spurgeon spirituality. And it's super fascinating stuff. What I'm arguing here is that the discipline of open-air preaching shapes Spurgeon's spirituality and his preaching. So to go back again to a phrase that Dr. Renahan used, we don't do what we do just out of responsibility alone. But our what we do, our works are fueled by grace. That's what makes us different from an LDS person. And, and as we'll see later in this lecture, Spurgeon was devoted to open-air preaching and the practice of it and the pedagogy of it because he's found commendation of it in Scripture. His belief in the five points of Calvinism, his belief in the sovereignty of God and salvation, his belief in reading about the acts of his Lord caused him to go out and do those very same things. So for him, he felt so strongly about this stuff, not necessarily out of a legalistic spirit, but he wanted pastors in particular to follow the example set before us by Scripture and by church history. So that's my first point. Spurgeon was convinced of it, and there was nothing in scholarship that I could see at the time of my writing talking about Spurgeon's strongly held beliefs about open-air preaching. No, number two, I want to talk about his method of pedagogy. So how he taught. So <laughs> lectures to my students as has been mentioned already last night. It's a book, if you haven't read it, 
Uh, you need to read it. You'll love the Lord Jesus Christ better after reading it. You probably won't agree with everything Spurgeon ever wrote in that book. I don't. But in reading it, you'll find the heartbeat of a shepherd. And you'll find the heartbeat of a pastor. And, and you'll find the heartbeat of a man who just loves students. And I think it's a model for those of us who are involved in seminary education to just love students well. And in loving students well, we learn how to have fun. Because as has already been mentioned, Spurgeon was pretty funny. At least I think he was anyway. He's, he's got my type of humor. We would have got along better than we probably should, but that's all right. So with Spurgeon, if you look at lecture in volume two of lectures to my students, you'll see two lectures dedicated to open-air preaching. Two lectures. You, you ought to go home and read these uh, within the next week. They're that good, it won't take you that long. The first lecture is called Open-Air Preaching, A Sketch of Its History. Open-Air Preaching, A Sketch of Its History. And in that lecture, I find this fascinating because I love all things history. I love learning how we got where we got and why we got where we got. Is that Spurgeon tracks from Old Testament times all the way through to his current day of the 19th century. The practice of, of open air preaching. So he goes as far back as Enoch in the Old Testament book of Genesis. And he says, Enoch is a preacher. And then he goes on and he talks about Noah. And he references the New Testament text that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Even though the text itself never actually says that if you go back and look at the account. But we know that Noah from the New Testament was a preacher of righteousness. Spurgeon takes that, well, he must have preached in the open air. Whether or not you agree with that is not the point. But that Spurgeon saw Noah as an open air preacher is the point. And then when you get to the prophets, uh, those are easy pickings. Because in all the prophetic... Uh, foretelling, Spurgeon said that that was all done in the open air, especially when you look at Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and all the, the wonderfully sad things that Jeremiah has to say and proclaim to a nation under judgment. Every bit of that was in the open air. And then, of course, you get to the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the true prince of preachers, we could say. Mark 1.15. Repent, you know it, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You remember where he did that. You can talk. You can be interactive. Where, where do you do that? By the seashore. 
It was in the open air. So he walked along the seashore and he proclaimed. So in Spurgeon's mind, the very first sermon we have recorded is an open air sermon. Even though in our New Testament text it's only one sentence long, it's still what he proclaimed in the open air. And then, of course, the Sermon on the Mount is an open-air teaching time, an open-air sermon. There wasn't a church building sitting up on the mount where he gathered, but it was in the open air. And a lot of us, when we think about these things, dear ones, we do not think about where they happen. And Spurgeon, in his sketch of its history, especially in the biblical portions, he is saying, Stop back and think. There's not very many times in the Scriptures where God's Word was proclaimed within the confines of a building. You, you have it in the book of Acts and in the synagogues, but they were kicked out of the synagogues. and Then they proclaimed in the open air like it places at Mars Hill. And, and in His... Pedagogy, Spurgeon wants the first of all ground. We see this in the scriptures. It's not a foreign concept. It doesn't have to be given over to the crazy Pelagian preachers that oftentimes is thought about when we think about open air preaching. But this is something that gospel preachers have always used. That's the point of his a sketch of the history of open-air preaching. Spurgeon wants you to know, first and foremost, it's biblical. And then in the medieval times, Spurgeon believed that the gospel was preached by Catholic friars leading up to the Reformation. And Spurgeon even has a quote within my work where he says that the Reformation would not have happened if it were not on the backs of open-air preachers. He even says that the Reformation was fueled by open-air preaching. So, So you see, Spurgeon put a lot of weight on this, didn't he? Spurgeon quoted a historian at the time that has a French name that I won't even try to pronounce, where this historian says that in the Dark Ages, the main problem was that there was a lack of biblical exposition. Just people did not know the Bible. That's what this historian says. And Spurgeon quotes him and Spurgeon says that the Reformation was sparked because the preaching of the Word became preeminent. The preaching of the Word became preeminent. And you see that in the sermons of Martin Luther and John Calvin, how they birthed the preaching of the Word within the walls of the local church. And Spurgeon would say, even before them, the Reformation was sparked by open-air preaching, by, getting, by 
Catholic friars even who were punished that got out and preached the gospel in the open air. And then after the Reformation, he alleges that Puritans also preached in the open air all the way up to the current day of the 19th century where he talks about men such as Robert Flockhart, an old Scottish preacher. And if you get a good book, if you want a good book that I don't think would be back there because it's kind of hard to find, get the autobiography of Robert Flockhart. Uh, if you can find it, it usually sells for, for a couple bucks. You should get that book and you should read it. You'll be greatly encouraged and edified. Spurgeon loved godly old Robert Flockhart. And then he also talks about Methodist preachers and the old circuit riders, how they would ride on horseback through the, the fields and preach the towns and villages in the open air. And he believes that Victorian England needed to get back to that. So he trained his students on how to do that. And that's where the second lecture comes into play. He has a lecture called Open Air Preaching Remarks Their Own. Open Air Preaching Remarks Their Own. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Because in Remarks Their Own, he just gives the most practical hints possible. For example, uh, one of my favorites is, is he says, don't scream at the top of your lungs. Nobody likes a screecher. That's essentially what he says. So, so he would say, speak with a loud voice, but don't scream at the top of your lungs where you sound like a maniac. That's essentially the point that he gets at. And if you know anything about the pastor's college, he would actually measure the chest of his students. And if they had a small chest, he would essentially tell them, I'm very glad you want to be a preacher, but you're just not physically capable of being a preacher. I wonder if he would say such a thing if he had something like this. Uh, there, there's a lot of preachers in our more Calvinistic movements that wouldn't have passed muster in Spurgeon's pastor's college because they don't have the chest, they don't have the wind capabilities to do this very thing, herald the gospel in the open air. And in Spurgeon's remarks their own, he tells his students, I, I expect you to do this. You are going to do this. And then he goes into giving them practical hints, like not screaming, like making sure that if you preach, you preach to your back at a wall so people can't come up behind you and do all manner of terrible things to you. And he would say, preach with the wind in your favor. So he, he wasn't against the wind helping the preacher uh, to get his voice to travel. So just very practical hints like that that I just absolutely love. So, so with all that said, I want to spend the 
the remainder of the time looking at Spurgeon's actual practice of open-air preaching. And I want to do that by looking at one particular sermon. One particular sermon. And that is Numbers 39 and 40. It's found in the New Park Street Pulpit, Volume 1. And this is my favorite Spurgeon sermon that I've ever read. This tells you something about me, I suppose. It's called Heaven and Hell. And I absolutely love it because <clears throat> there are sections of it where I disagree with Spurgeon. And there are sections of it with which I read it the first time and it made my blood run cold. And I hope that happens to you in this lecture. I want you to feel the same way as I did, perhaps for the first time. So, this sermon, Heaven and Hell, is very interesting. I've got two excerpts from the autobiography that I want to share with you all. He starts out, Many years ago, I preached to enormous assemblies in, in King Edwards Road, Hackney, which was then open fields. On those occasions, the rush was perilous to life and limb, and there seemed no limit to the throngs. Half the number would have been safer. The open space has vanished, and it is the assembled crowds listening to... Half the number would have been safer. The open space had vanished, and it's the same fields, and it is the same with fields at Brixton, where in years gone by, I was delighted to see the assembled crowds listening to the word, burdened with the rare troubles of drawing too many together. I've been compelled to abstain from these exercises in London but not from any lessened sense of their importance. You hear that? Spurgeon is saying, I've gotten so popular I physically can't do this anymore. I've become a safety hazard. But don't let that think that I don't think open-air preaching is important. So his popularity was such to where he could actually draw crowds simply by him being him. So with that said, here's what he says. With the tabernacle always full, I have as large a congregation as I desire at home, and therefore do not preach outside except in the country. But for those ministers who are under cover is but small, and what congregations are thin, the open air is the remedy, whether in London or in the provinces. So he mentions many years ago, he preached at Hackney. And in another excerpt from his biography, he talks about Hackney again. There were two evenings, June 22nd and September 4th, 1855, both in 1855, when I preached in the open air in a field in King Edwards Road, Hackney. On the first occasion, I had the largest congregation I had ever addressed up to that time. But at the next service, the crowd was still greater. 
By careful calculation, it was estimated that from 12 to 14,000 persons were present. I think I shall never forget the impression I received when, before we separated, <laughs> that vast multitude joined in singing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That night, I could understand better than ever before why the Apostle John in the Revelation compared the new song in heaven to the voice of many waters. And that glorious hallelujah, the mighty waves of praise seemed to roll up towards the sky in majestic grandeur, even as the billows of old ocean break upon the beach. Unfortunately, in my research, I could not track down the June 22nd sermon. However, the September 4th sermon is recorded for us. It's one of three recorded open-air sermons, and it's the one that I picked to look at with you all. I analyzed all three of them in my dissertation, but this is my favorite. It's got a special place in my heart, as I've said. And in this sermon preached on September 4th, 1855, Spurgeon spoke upon the topics of heaven and hell. And I did do the math correctly on this. September 4th, 1855 would have put Spurgeon at 21 years old. If I'm wrong, you can Correct me later, but that's what I have written down in my book, so I hope I'm right. So with that said, Spurgeon was a young man in the 1850s. He was not very old at all. I do know enough about math to get that right. So with that said, I want you to think about a young 20-something-year-old minister saying such things as the following. He took his sermon text from Matthew 8 that says, Many will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the children of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. So you can see the heaven component with reclining with the early Jewish fathers and then the hell component with folks being cast out. Look at how he opens up this sermon. Tonight, I shall, I hope, encourage you to seek the road to heaven. <coughs> I shall also have to utter some very sharp things concerning the end of the lost and the pit of hell. Upon both these subjects, I will try and speak as God helps me. But I beseech you, as you love your souls, weigh right and wrong this night. See whether what I say to you be the truth of God. If it be not, reject it utterly and cast it away. But if it is, at your peril, disregard it. For as you shall answer before God, the great judge of heaven and earth, it will go ill with you if the words of his servant and of his scriptures be despised. 
How's that for a sermon introduction? He's giving his hearers exactly what he's going to talk about, and he says, you better listen, because if I am right and you despise this, it's going to be at your own peril. And in this text, what we see is one who is really, 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 really concerned with those to whom he's talking. And think about it. I believe the quotation I read, 12 to 14,000 people, and he didn't have one of these. So he was using his voice. It's why he measured his students' chest, and, the, and if they couldn't take in a lot of air with their diaphragm and blow it out in the trumpet of air to proclaim God's word, he'd say, he'd say, son, you're not allowed to preach. That's my Texas paraphrase of Spurgeon. <laughs> and in his talking about heaven, it's really centered upon the Lord Jesus Christ, just seeing him in all his glory and, and all his awe and all his reverence. It's one of the reasons why I answered the question with my non-answer last night at first about if I would ask anything of Spurgeon, what would it be? And I redirected the answer to Christ. It's because he so wanted people to behold the Savior. So much so that Spurgeon actually sounded kind of post-millennial. Most people don't know that. The young Spurgeon, at the very least, had some post-millennial tendencies. And, and this is one of those. And I find it extremely interesting. He says, But my text hath yet a greater depth of sweetness. For it says that many shall come and shall sit down. Some narrow-minded bigots think that heaven will be a very small place where there will be a very few people who went to, be, who went to their chapel or their church. I confess I have no wish for a very small heaven. And I love to read in the scriptures that there are many in my father's house. How often do I hear people say, Ah, straight is the gate and narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. There will be very few in heaven. There will be most lost. My friend, I differ from you. Do you think that Christ will let the devil beat him? Then he will let the devil have more in hell than there will be in heaven? No, it is impossible. For then Satan would laugh at Christ. There will be more in heaven than there are among the lost. God says that, quote, there will be a number that no man can number who will be saved, unquote. But he never says that there will be a number that no man can number that will be lost. There will be a host beyond all count who will get into heaven. What glad tidings for you and for me. For if there are so many to be saved, why should I not be saved? Why not should you? Why should 
not yon man over there in the crowd say, Cannot I be one of the multitude? And may not that poor woman there in the crowd say, Cannot I be one of the multitude? And may not that one there say, But since there are many to come, why should I also not be saved? So you see, he's calling to the crowd. And he's actually interacting with his crowd of hearers, encouraging them to come in. Come in. He goes on to say, Cheer up, disconsolate. Cheer up, son of mourning, child of sorrow. There is hope for thee still. I can never know that any man has passed God's grace. There be a few that have sinned, that sin that is unto death, and God gives them up. But the vast host of mankind are yet within the reach of sovereign mercy, and many of them shall come from the east and from the west, and shall sit down in the kingdom of heaven. So there, there's a lot there that I do agree with. I do believe that there will be many in heaven. However, I do not agree with his strong language saying that they're narrow-minded bigots just because they believe that most of the people that have lived throughout the history of this world will be in, in hell. I personally disagree with Spurgeon there. He almost sounds post-millennial-esque in this particular sermon. And what, what I would say to you is regardless of your eschatology, here's what you can glean from this that is very good. He, he is using his theology of there will be more in heaven than in hell to beckon people to come in, to beckon them to taste and see that Yahweh is good, to taste and see that he is a good and gracious God. And notice again how he calls out the people that are listening to him in the crowd because he's Spurgeon. He can gather such a crowd. And he says to them, Come, come. Why don't you there, sir? Why don't you there, woman, come and try my Savior? And if you have an issue with that language, just listen to the this next quote, he's beckoning men and women to come and try the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. He's still talking about heaven at this point. And now, thou chief of sinners, list one moment. List is another way to say listen. Listen one moment while I call thee to Jesus. There is one person here tonight who thinks himself the worst soul that ever lived. There is one who says to himself, I do not deserve to be called to Christ, I am sure. So I call thee, thou lost, most wretched outcast, this night by authority given me of God, I call thee to come to my Savior. Some time ago when I went to the county court, to see what they were doing. I heard a man's name called out, and immediately the man said, 
make way, make way, they call me. And up he came. Now I call the chiefs of sinners tonight and let him say, make way, make way, doubts, make way, fears, make way, sins, Christ calls me. And if Christ calls me, that is enough. You see, it's Calvinism bleeding through. And look at what he continues to say. Go and try my Savior. Go and try my Savior. If he cast you away after you have sought him, tell him, tell in the pit of hell that Christ would not hear you, but that you shall never be allowed to do. You'll never be allowed to do that. It would dishonor the mercy of the covenant for God to cast away one penitent sinner. And it shall never be while it is written. Here's the text. Matthew 8. Many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Notice how it calls for sinners to repent. And he is unashamed to do so. Are you too much of a Calvinist that you can't do this? Not necessarily in the open air, but even in your pulpits. When's the last time you've beckoned somebody? To come and try your Savior. Not out of their own free will, but based on the mercies of God's covenant promises to never throw away a penitent sinner. Because if the Holy Spirit's working on them, they will come. And in some mysterious way, God uses our evangelistic pleas to get sinners to come. Spurgeon knew this as a 21-year-old boy. And he used the idea of heaven, the idea of joy inexpressible, joy and glorious joy, as 1 Peter 1 tells us to beckon sinners to come in. That when we stand before God on that great day, we will stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. All because preachers like you and me and like Spurgeon said, come, come to Jesus. <clears throat> but Spurgeon had to talk about those who were cast out. And if you want to read a sermon that will rivet home the realities of hell to your heart. Read, read that sermon tonight. Read it tomorrow after your own church gathering. Let me give you just a taste. Spurgeon would oftentimes role play in his sermons. <laughs> he, he would oftentimes take the role of a mother, a father, a, a slave 
master, a slave. And he would, he would do things that were not always considered okay in a 21st century American culture. He would, he would talk like a, like a black slave. He would uh, do certain things like that. Back in the 19th century, that was more okay than to do now. And in so doing, it would always be to drive a point home. And in this next instance, Tom Nettles believes, and I think he's right here, that he's actually parroting what his own mother might have told him one time. Spurgeon says... That was a dreadful dream which a pious mother once had and told her children. She thought the judgment was come. The great books were opened. They all stood before God. (coughs) And Jesus Christ said, Separate the chaff from the wheat. Put the goats on the left hand and the sheep on the right. The mother dreamed that she and her children were standing just in the middle of the great assembly. And the angel came and said, I must take the mother. She is a sheep. She must go to the right hand. The children are goats. They must go on the left. She thought as she went, her children clutched her. And said, Mother, can we part? Must we be separated? She then put her arms around them and seemed to say, My children, I would, if possible, take you with me. But in a moment, the angel touched her. Her cheeks were dried. And now, overcoming natural affection, being rendered supernatural and sublime, Resigned to do God's will, she said, My children, (coughs) I taught you well. I trained you up, and you forsook the ways of God. And now all I have to say is, Amen to your condemnation. (coughs) Therefore, they were snatched away, and she saw them in perpetual torment while she was in heaven. Watch how Spurgeon pleads. Young man, what will you think when the last day comes to hear Christ say, Depart, ye cursed. And there will be a voice just behind him saying, Amen. And as you inquire whence came the voice, (coughs) you find it from your mother or young woman when thou art cast away into utter darkness. What will you think to hear a voice saying, Amen? And as you look there, sit your father, his lips still moving with the solemn curse. Ah, children of the kingdom, The penitent reprobates will enter heaven. Many of them, publicans and sinners, 
will get there. Repenting drunkards and swearers will be saved. But many of the children of the kingdom will be cast out. Oh, to think that you would have been so well trained should be lost. While many of the worst will be saved. (coughs) I told you it would make your blood run cold. I don't think we think about heaven a lot, even as preachers. I don't think we think about hell very much as preachers. So regardless of what you take as far as open-air preaching itself, I want you to know this. Preach Christ. Preach Christ. Preach Christ. Call for sinners and saints to believe the gospel. And if if you live in an area where where there's lots of people and and there are people that you know will never, ever, ever darken the doorways of your local church don't fall into the spirit of the age and say oh well that just doesn't work it's not effective I'm not going to try our dear brother Spurgeon would not have that type of attitude Spurgeon would tell us all we need to go and preach Christ where he hasn't been named. And I, I know I'm speaking to the choir and in front of a bunch of New England preachers and, and church members. Go and proclaim Christ. You'll find him to be a wonderful, merciful Savior to you. Preacher, go and proclaim Christ. And for those of you here that are maybe not called to preach, maybe... Maybe you're a man that's not called to preach, or maybe you're a woman. In a sense, we are all called to preach in terms of simple one-on-one evangelism. So if you're a mother here and you're raising children, Spurgeon has much to say about training children up in the way of the Lord. Don't grow weary in doing good. And on that day, the good Lord forbid you have to be among those mothers that say amen to your condemnation. What Spurgeon says, I think it's going to be true. You are going to be resigned to do God's will. And you're going to take more joy in the fact that you trained your beloved children rightly than the fact that they didn't receive it. And Christ himself will be your joy on that great day of judgment. And Christ himself will be your joy throughout of eternity. But until that day, we are called to proclaim Christ. We are called to proclaim Christ. So that would be my big one-point application. Proclaim Christ in any sphere of influence 
you have. And if you do that, <laughs> you'll have joy unspeakable in a land that really doesn't know much about joy anymore. So, let's pray together. Father, as we come before you, we, we thank you and praise you for just the joy of, of being pastors, preachers, teachers, all, all of us evangelists, and, and that's preaching sense, Father. Give everybody here the strength to be better evangelists and preachers, uh, especially for the, for the mothers and fathers here. May they teach their children well. And I pray that they wouldn't have to say amen to the condemnation of any of their children. But I pray more than anything that your son himself will be their joy, even on that last great day, and no matter what happens. Give the preachers and pastors here that have the ability and, and the strength to, to, to get up and, and proclaim the gospel in the open air and just find joy in proclaiming your son's excellencies to a lost and dying world. Raise up more preachers for your glory. And may Spurgeon's legacy be well preserved in this area as we seek to make much of your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.